Will you pray with me? O God, in the stillness, come meet us. Amen. So there is a memoir called Teacher Man, which was written by Frank McCourt, and he's chronicling all of his experiences teaching English. He taught in all kinds of different schools over the years, and inevitably, when students failed to complete an assignment, they would bring an excuse note. These were supposedly from their parents. Now, Mr. McCourt saved the notes, he placed them in a drawer because he realized over the years that they were amazing notes. They were examples of, of really thoughtful and creative and persuasive prose on the part of his students. So let me share a few examples. Here's one. The stove caught fire and the wallpaper went up and the fire department kept us out of the house all night. Or this one. Arnold doesn't have his homework today because he was getting off the train yesterday and the door closed on his school bag and the train took it away. He yelled at the conductor, who said very vulgar things as the train drove away, something should be done. <laughs> and then, I think this is my favorite, a man died in the bathtub upstairs, and it overflowed, and it messed up all of Roberta's homework on the table. <laughs> you know, it seems that we are prolific at offering excuses for our actions or our inactions, our failures, our inability to get things done. So I can just imagine that by the end of his teaching career, Mr. McCourt had a humongous drawer of excuses from his students over the years. I can only imagine how much bigger God's drawer of excuse notes must be. Because as human beings, we are masters at not taking responsibility. And I think in some ways, this is wrapped up in our hesitancy as Christians to use the word sin. The story that we read from Genesis 3 has in some ways become a story of our culture as well as a religious story. The earth creature, Adam, right, who we call Adam, but really Adam, the creature of the dust, and the mother of all life, who we call Eve. They are there in the garden. They're enjoying the good life that has been designed for them. It's described as a paradise, a beautiful garden, almost too good to be true. And the serpent comes and challenges their understanding of the limits of what they are allowed to do. But the serpent also challenges the reasoning behind those limits. Did God say you will die? <laughs> no, you won't die, but you will become like God because you will know the difference between good and evil. And so Eve takes a second look at that fruit and says, well, that does look good. I think I'll have some. And she gives some to Adam, who eats too, and the serpent is right. They don't die. And they do have newfound knowledge. And the next thing you know, they realize they are naked, and they hear the Lord God walking in the garden, and they hide. But God finds them, 
and seems to already know what they have done. But the woman doesn't take responsibility, and the man doesn't take responsibility, and that snake doesn't take responsibility either. They all make masterful excuses. And so God sends them forth from the Garden of Eden to work and to toil the land. And he places that cherubim on the east side of the garden and a flaming and turning sword to guard the way to the tree of life. So the man and woman won't eat of it and then live forever. You know, different wisdom traditions give different names to the experience of sin or they describe it in different ways. And yet it is the human experience of sin itself that paves the way for wisdom traditions to give it a name. And we read an example this morning from the Taoist tradition describing how when people get together, they inevitably move toward angry moods and underhanded tricks and disorder and indulgences. Now the word sin or fall, neither of them ever appear in our own creation myth from Genesis. And yet over the years, this story has become the story that is continually used to point back to the sinful and fallen nature of humanity. In the fourth century, Augustine of Hippo was the one who first attached the words original sin to this story. And that very much became the influencing factor that that created the narrative that this story in Genesis 3 is our our typical story about sin. And so with this lens, sin becomes primarily about individual disobedience. Unfortunately, this lens of sin being individual disobedience is way too narrow, both really for the complexity of this particular story, but also for the complexity and the nuance of sin as found in the biblical narrative. So first I want to look at the complexity of this story. So here are some questions that I thought of that I could ask of this story. You may have others, but I would ask things like this. If God knew that they would eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then why did God put the tree in the place where it would tempt them and then forbid them from eating it? Is God testing them, setting them up for failure or what? And if God actually wanted them to eat it, like knew they were going to, and in fact maybe they had to eat it to fulfill the purpose of fallen human creation, then why would God punish them for doing it? And then this one for me, right? Why did God lie? Because the serpent is actually the one who tells them the truth. They're not going to die if they eat that forbidden fruit, and they don't. They just have new knowledge. So I'm not going to pretend like these questions have answers, because I don't know them. They're my questions, too, and they're real questions. But I don't think that these questions lessen the power of this story to tell us something important and powerful about ourselves. Because this is a myth. It's a teaching story that, that tells us some deep truths about ourselves and our realities. It's not a philosophical argument meant to prove without a doubt the existence of sin and to be an incredibly logical argument. That's not what this story is for. 
But we know deep in our bones that life isn't always set up in a fair way. And sometimes the reason that we are forbidden from doing something isn't really the presenting reason. And just because God knows things will happen doesn't mean that God wills things to happen. And sometimes the one who speaks words of truth does so with an ulterior motive. And excuses? Well, we are very good at making excuses, especially after we make choices. And what is hard, what leads to a life of separation and toil is often a consequence of our choices and our excuses. We tell this story because it tells us some truths about the way things really are. Barbara Brown Taylor, in her book, Speaking of Sin, The Lost Language of Salvation, she says it this way. She says, we really are free to make disastrous choices, disastrous decisions. And our choices really do have consequences. And there really are some flaws in the whole setup. Whether they come in the form of talking snakes or in the form of this almost biological urge that we have to choose things that we know are ruinous for us and for the whole creation. The second way that I said this lens of viewing sin as individual disobedience is too narrow is that it's too narrow in the context of the whole biblical narrative. There are so many examples of sin in the Bible, that may not surprise you. Not all of them can be defined as individual disobedience. In fact, in Hebrew, there are three different words used in the Old Testament for sin. So this goes back to that translation thing, right? Something almost always gets lost in translation. So the first and most common Hebrew word is probably pronounced kata. This is roughly translated as to miss the mark. And in, in scripture, hata is used for sins that may or may not have started from deceitful intentions, but that nonetheless were committed intentionally. This reminds me of that reading from Taoism. There are two examples I want to lift up of many. David's plot to kill Bathsheba's husband Uriah which is found in 2 Samuel, the verb that's used for his kind of sin is hata. Or Jeroboam's decision to set up golden calves in the northern cities of Bethel and Dan, that's found in 1 Kings 12. That's the word that's used to describe his sin is also hata. So both David and Jeroboam, they started out as leaders chosen by God to do right. But other things drew their attention away from God, and in the end, they made intentional choices that missed the mark. They committed hata. They sinned. Now, the second Hebrew word that's used in the Old Testament is ava. Now, this is roughly translated as to act wrongly. And often in English translations, when it is the word ava used, you'll see it translated in English as iniquity. Go study your Old Testament today and see how many times you can find iniquity. Then you'll say, aha, I know that it's actually ava. I bet you'll go do that this afternoon, won't you? 
So Ava, this separation from God, it, it definitely includes wrong intent, and it usually involves a violation of the Ten Commandments. So the sons of Eli, for example, they commit Ava, or they commit an iniquity when they eat the best cuts of meat from the offerings that are supposed to be given to God. They know they're not supposed to do it, and they do it. That is in 1 Samuel 2. They act wrongly, they commit ava, and they sin. Now the, fir- the third and final Hebrew word is pasha. Now this is roughly translated as to rebel. And in scripture, pasha is often translated in English as transgressions. You've probably heard that, right? The transgressions and iniquities of the people. And you're like thinking, what? What does that even mean? This is what that means. Ava is is a separation from God that is a full-fledged revolt. And the prophet Micah uses this word Ava to denounce foreclosure, or Pasha, I'm getting them all confused. Goodness gracious, Pasha. That's that's the full-fledged revolt. So the prophet Micah uses Pasha to denounce foreclosures by wealthy landowners who turn the poor people out of their homes. Pasha is used in Micah for the unjust laws that affect women and children the most. Pasha is also used for preachers who say whatever the people want to hear. So in this this, this prophet Micah, the people rebelled in their systems of life, and they committed pasha. They sinned. So in all three of these nuanced understandings of sin, whether it is that people are missing the mark or knowingly acting wrongly or outright rebelling, they are out of sync with God. And the consequence of that action is not so much a punishment from God as it is an announcement that they are going away from the path that leads to life. So I think you can already see that having an understanding of sin as individual disobedience is too narrow. And yet, this is where the challenge of language and translation comes in. Because Christianity was originally a Greek-speaking language, and so very early on, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, was translated into Greek. And when this happened, translation choices had to be made about which word and nuance and meaning had priority because the same words were not available in Greek as they were in Hebrew, and the same nuances were not available. And so chata, which was used most frequently in Hebrew, won out over the other verbs, and this meant that the main sense of sin that is captured in the New Testament is that concept of missing the mark I think I remember learning that in middle school. Sin is when you miss the mark. Period. That's it. That's simple. Right? That, that this, 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 uh, this movement in the verb, in, in the course of translation, then emphasized this idea that, that sin is a state of darkness, that it separates humanity and God. And and Judaism's solution to that darkness was was by following the Torah. 
Christianity's solution to that darkness became Jesus. And so a simplistic interpretation of the darkness and its solution leads to two opposite problems, both of which have manifested themselves in our language around sin. It is either the zealousness of those on the religious right to use the language of sin like a weapon, or the reticence of those on the religious left to use the language of sin at all. So I want to start on that that more liberal side, that there has been a love for using medical language to describe sin. And this means that sin is sickness, and everyone is vulnerable to sickness, and no one, none of us, can avoid being sick at some point in our lives. So sickness is something we don't ask for, we don't create with our choices, nor is it anything that we have control over. And so framing sin as sickness erases our sense of freedom, because sickness just happens to us, but it also erases our sense of responsibility because we didn't cause it. And Barbara Brown Taylor writes, when sickness is substituted for sin, then illness becomes the metaphor for human failing. We receive diagnosis instead of judgment, treatment instead of penance. Now it is true that this language has biblical precedence, but it's not all-encompassing enough. And as Barbara Brown Taylor says, it lends itself to a kind of no-fault theology based on an existential understanding of sin as all-pervasive and unavoidable. In other words, the darkness of separation from God is merely part of what it means to be human, and we have no responsibility for causing it. And then since Jesus has already brought humanity and God back together and bridged the darkness, therefore grace and forgiveness covers the gap and there's nothing more we need to do. So judgment is hardly appropriate if all of us sin, if it's, not, if it's something that none of us can escape, and if we don't really have the freedom to choose something else or the responsibility for what we have chosen. On the other extreme, though, is the more conservative side that has loved, loved, loved the legal language for sin, because here sin is a crime. And this places a very high value on the way that we are very responsible for our actions. And so regardless of our circumstances, we are quite free in this framework to avoid lives of crime, and we are expected to do so. And if we fail and we are caught, then we will have to face the consequences, and the severity of those consequences is dependent upon the crime committed. And so again, Barbara Brown Taylor writes, when crime is substituted for sin, then lawlessness becomes the metaphor for human failing. And the answer is not medicine, but a swift dose of justice. This also has a biblical precedent but it is not comprehensive enough to grasp the whole nuance of the word. And so it lends itself to a kind of full-fault theology based on an understanding of sin as willful misbehavior. And so the emphasis is on the individual believer and their power to choose between right and wrong. In other words, the darkness and separation from God is entirely the fault of the sinful actions of humanity, and we have all the responsibility for causing it. 
And in this legal mode, Jesus is pictured as a fair and righteous judge who holds us accountable for our actions in order to bridge the darkness between humanity and God. I remember when we lived in St. Louis, I was part of a clergy covenant group, and we formed this small group, and we agreed to come up with our own order for our meeting, like a set of questions, what we were going to ask each other each time. And we were trying to figure out a question about becoming more aware of our failings or our shortcomings. And so we tried out different phrases. We said things like, well, where have you become disconnected from God or others? Or we tried out, what habits are life-draining for you? I like several of these, but my group rejected them. And there was finally one person in the group who said, we need to call sin, sin. Ouch. Part of what I, this is what she said, part of what I need to learn in my own spiritual life is the, the ability to look within myself and to see the sin and to name it so that it loses power over me. So we ended up with this question. It was a lot more direct. What sins have separated you from God, yourself, or others? And I have to admit, I didn't like that question. It was really hard. It was really hard to come to that group and to make confession of a sin. It felt so much easier and less heavy to name a bad habit or to acknowledge a tear in a relationship. But it was powerful to come to realize that self-negation is just as much a sin as is self-promotion. It was powerful to have to, to push myself to name that pressing snooze too many times was not just a bad habit, but it was the sin of sloth manifesting itself in my life. That it was hard to confess to my group that it was the sin of pride that was causing arguments with and framing this question in terms of sin meant that sometimes my answer was something like this. This is the bad habit that's troubling me. I can name that. But I am searching for the root of sin that is causing me to cling to this bad habit. That is causing me to repeat it over and over. That is causing me to attack. And this question, it caused me to ponder and to pray and to really pay attention to my bad habits and to the tears in my relationships like I never had before. That practice did something to me and in me and through me. It also made me feel responsible in a way that I hadn't before, but it didn't leave me helpless. It also made me feel empowered to do something about it in a way that I hadn't felt before. And you know what? I also left that group feeling forgiven in a way that I hadn't before. You see, theological words offer more room for paradox and nuance than medical words or legal words, though they have a good and important place. Because the language of sin reminds us that we are not entirely choiceless. We do get to choose how we respond to the sickness that we didn't choose. 
but is nevertheless present in our lives. We, we do get to choose how we respond to things that were done to us. And this is the core, in fact, of the very first question that we ask in our Methodist tradition in our baptismal vows. We ask this, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sin? You have choice. I have choice. And we all have responsibility to choose to renounce. At the same time, the language of sin reminds us that we are not entirely responsible, that we are also not left alone to redeem ourselves, that that is what God does, and we are not God. And this, too, is present in our baptismal vows and our Methodist tradition when we ask this question, do you accept the freedom and power that God gives you to resist evil and oppression and injustice in whatever forms it presents himself? We are not expected to do it all alone. We have the power of God to draw upon. And so the language of sin is neither a no-fault language, as medical language might lead us to believe, nor is it a full-fault language, as legal language might lead us to believe. And in part, this is because the language of sin should primarily point us to broken relationships, that, that it's about pointing us to broken relationship with God or with ourselves or with others or with creation. And perhaps we can most clearly then identify sin in its aftermath and what it does to relationships. So I want to give you an example. 400 years ago, in 1619, a ship arrived in Virginia bearing human cargo. And though this wasn't the first time in history that Africans were stolen from their homelands, that event marked the culture in the North American colonies that eventually formed the United States. And today, with high incarceration rates for black and brown people, Today, in our environment of high tension with the police, today, with the feeding of white nationalism in our current political climate, just to name a few, we are still experiencing the aftermath of sin. We are still experiencing that sin that has been passed on from generation to generation to generation. And so using the language of sin, it points us toward repair. It also points us toward what, it's, what it takes to set things right. Because, because just by choosing to call what ails the world sin, choosing to call the transatlantic slave trade and its aftermath sin, this makes a radical shift in our perception of reality, but it also forces us to admit that not only is something wrong, but that something is required of us in the face of what is wrong. 
Barbara Brown Taylor says, sin is our only hope. Because the recognition that something is wrong is the first step towards setting it right again. There is no help for those who admit no need of help. There is no repair for those who insist that nothing is broken. There is no hope of transformation for a world whose inhabitants accept that it is sadly but irreversibly There's a story that I want to close with about a writer named Reynolds Price. You may have heard of him. He suffered from a rare form of spinal cancer in the the mid-80s. And he lost the use of his legs through this. His illness required him to change his entire way of life. And he was surprised as he went through that process of change at how resistant his friends were to embracing his new way of life and how resistant they were to him embracing a new way of life. And this is what he says. And it's, it's, he's not talking about sin exactly, but it fits. He says, when we undergo huge traumas in middle life, everybody is in league with us to deny that the old life has ended And everybody is trying to patch us up and get us back to who we were, when in fact what we need to be told is, you're dead. Who are you going to be tomorrow? Now, he's not talking about sin, right? He's talking about moving forward in the face of trauma, and yet his words are so powerful when we put them in this context of speaking about sin. Because when we speak about sin, each of us has something different that comes to our minds. The picture is different for each of us. And maybe that's because I think in so many ways, sin is less concerned with specific behaviors. And it is so much more concerned with the aftermath of those behaviors on relationships. And so the experience that we have to look for when we try to imagine sin, when we try to see it, is the one that makes something inside of us die. That deep down we all have that experience of being cut off from life or cut off from from relationship. And when we then measure that full distance between where we are and where God created us to be, when when we suffer with that distance, but also when we decide not to live with it anymore, That is the moment when we know that we are dead and we begin to decide who we will be tomorrow. And that is the moment when speaking of sin paves the way for life.